back in 2011, uh, Yale law professor Amy Chua wrote a book called The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom. How many of you are familiar with that book? Yeah, mostly parents, right? Um, a tiger mom refers to a strict and demanding mother, particularly from the Asian Eastern culture background, who pushes her children to successfully achieve, especially academically, by attaining like perfect test scores and other academic awards and achievements. And uh, when this book was written and published, it created a firestorm of debate all across the United States and even internationally. Right, whether this was the right way or a good way. Uh, well, for me, I grew up with a tiger dad. He, uh, no, I felt like no matter how hard I tried, I could never be good enough. I could never please him. And so he made me take piano lessons from an early age. I took violin and karate. Isn't that like the perfect trifecta of like what Asians do, right? <laughs> piano, violin, karate, right? And... Uh, not only that, but again, they focus really a lot on scholastic achievement in school. And so uh, gr- growing up, especially during high school, I, I would occasionally bring home a, a B plus. And being the tiger dad, my dad that my dad was, he was always disappointed. He would sit me down and say, Sung, I see there's a B plus in your report card. I know you can do better. Uh, have you tried your best? And I'd always say, yes, I've tried my best. Next time I want you to get an A. Well, the following semester, I'd come home with A's, and he'd sit me down again and say, Sung, I see you have all A's. I'm like, and I felt pretty proud of myself, like, yeah, that's right. He said, well, have you you tried your best? I did my best. I know you can do better. Like, what What, what do you want? He's like, I want you to get an A+. The following semester, I'd come home with A-pluses, ready to, to show off all my good grades, thinking that my dad would finally approve and, and, and just be, be like, uh, accept all, all my grades. And he sat me down, still disappointed, and say, said, Sung, I see you have A pluses. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Are you happy now? And he'd say, why aren't you a valedictorian? I, I felt like I could never be good enough, right? In fact, my parents were so focused on school and, and, and like scholastic achievement, right? Being the tiger dad that my dad was, uh, my sophomore year of college, I want, or, sorry, high school, I want, to, I want to try out for the football team. So I ran to my dad. We, bo- we both love football. And I said, Dad, I want to try out for the football team. Uh, what do you think? And again, being a tiger dad and school being all consumingly important, he said, no, just study. Uh, well, uh, I, I still went out for the football team and played uh, against his wishes. Um, later on, during my junior year, I, I wanted to get a job, kind of make some money, go out with friends, spend a little. So I said, hey, um, mom, dad, I want to get a job. Again, uh, I said, hey, uh, my dad sat me down and said, no, son, you just need to focus on school. You can't get a job, just study. Well, I still went out and got a job, and, and throughout my college, uh, high school uh, years, uh, my dad and I uh, got into a lot of arguments together, right? Uh, and last week, I shared a little bit about how I grew over the years in anger and resentment and bitterness towards my dad, and how really growing up in a religious home actually led me to rebellion, uh, so much so that I, I started to transfer this whole idea that I could never be good enough for what my parents and my dad in particular expected of me. I started to transfer that in my belief about God. 
I felt like no matter what I did, no matter how much I read the Bible or, or uh, d- did good works or anything, that I was never good enough. And I always felt like this whole idea that it, I had to perform in order for God to accept me. Well, that is what we call religion, right? Somehow uh, gaining God's approval through our hard work, our good works, and, and our good deeds and good behavior. Well, we're in a series called Jesus is Greater Than Religion because, again, the, uh, religion is, is so just all over the place here, right? The, this idea that you can attain a good relationship with God through your own efforts. So we want to talk about how Jesus is better and greater than trying harder and doing more and being good enough. Um, during my freshman year, uh, after I went off to college, again, growing up in a religious home all my life, my dad being a pastor, and growing up in church all my life, I went to, uh, the one thing I continued to do, and I made a promise to my dad, even though I had rejected church and God, I said that I would continue to go to church. I started to get uh, plugged into a local church there, and during my freshman year, I came to a couple of realizations that I'd never understood growing up in church all my life. The first was that sin... Uh, it was not something outside of me. It was something that was inside of me. And my sins in particular condemned me to eternal separation with God. For the first time in my life, I understood that and really believed that. Secondly, I would come into church every Sunday and I'd always sit in the back row, right? Like what, where some of you are sitting right now. And uh, I remember, especially during the singing, as people were standing and singing, I would sit there and go, man, there's just something different about these people. I don't know what it is. Well, uh, towards the end of October, I went to a retreat that our church held. And it was at that retreat, again, during the time of singing together, that I, I just had just this real like powerful experience where I felt like God spoke to my heart, not audibly, but in a way that I still remember that moment in my life. It was a time that I actually understood Jesus and the good news that he brought as opposed to just religion. While we were singing, uh, it was in response to a message that was given from Ephesians, and we're actually going to read that text this morning. But during, while the time we were singing, and the song just had these words where uh, just spoke powerfully to me, and it basically said this, Look, in Jesus Christ, you are already loved and accepted. You don't have to perform because Jesus has done and accomplished what you can never do which is rescue yourself and give you a right relationship with God the Father. And that was the day that I became a Christian, October 31st, almost 25 years ago. Now, the irony of the gospel is this. Even though I grew up all my life under the oppression of religion, which is what I would call it, right? The idea that I had to do all these things in order to be accepted— The gospel was so powerful in a way that transformed me that now I actually wanted to obey. I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to pray. I wanted to go to church for the first time. You see, religion was like a hammer on a piece of metal trying to bend me and conform me to to what I thought were like nonsensical rules. The gospel of Jesus comes in, and if I were like a piece of metal, if my heart was a piece of metal, the gospel was like a furnace that just melted my heart and reshaped me into the image of Jesus. The amazing thing is, I remember after that moment, you know, after years and years of growing up with resentment and bitterness and anger with my dad, I mean, my relationship with my dad changed that moment, that day, that day. It's not that we never had arguments anymore or anything, but again, the anger and the resentment and all the bitterness that built up 
was now replacing my new identity as a child of God and his family. Well, the passage scripture that was uh, preached on that morning, or that, that, that day at the retreat, I, I want to be the focus of today's message, and it's going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. You could follow along in your Bibles or uh, in the screens uh, uh, in front. Ephesians chapter 1, this is Paul writing to the church in, in the city of Ephesus. He says this to them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. What I want to do is, uh, we often hear that and think that's a lot of religious jargon, what I want to do is give us a little bit of historical context. So give me like 10 minutes of your attention as I kind of go through a little historical context that will help us understand this biblical text and then we'll kind of relook at it with, in, in light of that, okay? Some of you are already yawning. History, oh, just stay with me for like 10 minutes, right? Um, so the time between the writing of the last book of the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Malachi, and the, new, and the time of Jesus in the New Testament was a period of 400 years. That 400-year period, also called the intertestamental period, uh, during that time, something very significant happened. Alexander the Great conquered much of the known world. And one of his primary goals was not just to conquer his enemies, he wanted to what's called Hellenize the entire known world. That is, he wanted to spread Greek culture, language, and worldview to every person in every part of the land. In essence, Alexander wanted everybody to turn, he wanted everybody to be Greek, right? He did that by a few means. First, he built temples of worship dedicated to the Greek gods. Secondly, he also built beautiful amphitheaters. Here's an example of one in the ruins of Ephesus that held tens of thousands of people. And then he commissioned thousands of Greek plays and dramas, Greek art and music, all in an attempt to make Greek culture so compelling uh, that your heart would be captured and won over by it, not by force or compulsion, but by simply by its sheer beauty and excellence. Alexander continued to go on and build huge arenas for gladiator contests and gymnasiums for athletic events. And one of the most central values and beliefs of Hellenism was this idea that the human body was idealized and admired. So much so that there was a huge emphasis on physical perfection. In fact, in their athletic contests, like in the Olympic Games and Isthmian Games, they would be held and the athletes would participate in those games without clothes. They would run completely naked because of this value that they thought the human body was the most glorious thing imaginable. And so pervasive was this ideal of human perfection, so exalted and celebrated was the idea of human glory that you see evidence of this in many of the Greek sculptures of different athletes or gladiators throughout history. Now, over the years, 
that became so celebrated that anything that didn't live up to that perfection and that ideal was pushed to the margins of Greek culture. So they had circuses, traveling circuses, where deformed, disfigured, and handicapped people were put on display for the crowds to gawk at, right? With a strange mix of curious fascination and like frightful horror. And you see, Alexander wanted, was driven by this belief that Greece was the hope of the world. And, and that Greece would bring order and beauty and truth and justice and goodness in a world filled with chaos, ugliness, evil, and deceit. So, when Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, uh, the whole region had already been Hellenized for hundreds of years. And the ruling power of the day wasn't the, the Greek empire, it was taken over by the glorious and famed Roman Empire that stretched all the way from Spain to the Middle East and all the way up to the, to the British Isles and down into Northern Africa. Um, and uh, the Roman Empire not only uh, adopted, but they adapted many of the ideals of the Greek, uh, of Alexander the Great. Probably one of the, the most tragic things that happened during this time uh, was that if an infant was born into a family, uh, and the infant was either unwanted because it was wick, uh, sick or weakly or, or, uh, any, or handicapped or def, quote-unquote defective or deformed in any way, the father had legal permission to take the child to go outside the city and leave it there to die in, in the elements. The city of Ephesus was built into the side of a mountain. Uh, the city of Ephesus is, is portrayed in that red dot there on the map. And so what people would do during this time is they would take their unwanted and defective child up this mountainside to a specific place where they would leave their unwanted child uh, to die there. Now, even more unimaginable was that other people would go through the trash heap at night and pick through the kids that were discarded. These people would go pick out these kids, one, to either fill the brothels of the city of Ephesus or to use them and raise them as slaves for their own purposes. Because Ephesus was a major center for human trafficking and child prostitution. And even Roman law recognized the fact that once an infant was abandoned, the child became the property of anyone who picked them, them up. And so you have a picture of a culture where anything that is blemished, anything that is deformed and defective, anything that is, uh, is, is not perfect is discarded and gotten rid of. And there was a place where you could go up a mountain and go and pick up in the trash heap any, uh, these kids who would be left and abandoned to claim them as your own. Later on in the book of Ephesians, Paul addresses uh, the church and says, masters and slaves... So you can imagine in all these house churches throughout the city of uh, Ephesus were both masters and slaves, slaves who were abandoned as kids and now raised up as slaves that were living in other people's households. Now, with that in mind, I want us to go back and take a look at this passage again and want to look at the biblical text with a little bit new eyes. Paul again starts by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. This word blameless can also be translated without defect. That he has chosen you before the foundations of the world to be holy without defect, 
you are made perfect in him. And then he goes on to say, in love, he predestined us. Now, don't let the word predestined trip you up, right? Some of you theologically minded people, right, uh, who who may like to uh, debate this whole idea of predestination. First, Paul was not giving us a theological treatise here by saying that word. He was giving praise and worship to God. Secondly, nobody in the first century would have had a, had a heated debate about whether God was a Calvinist or not. Right? So that is not the point of this passage. Right? Do you know what they would have been thinking as they read these few verses? That even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy, without defect, perfect, before him in love, he chose us, they would have been weeping because they lived in a worldview that said fate ruled your life. And for slaves who might have been abandoned by their parents and left for dead and raised as slaves, this was revolutionary, right? So when Paul leads with this idea that you have been chosen to be without defect, that you have been chosen to be made perfect, what do you think this does to them? Nothing else in, this, in their world would say this about them. Nothing. In love, God chose you. In other words, this is the image that they would have had. God is the God who goes up the mountain. He goes to those who have been discarded and abandoned, uh, and he loves them and he chooses them and declares them to be without defect, without sin, and made perfect in Christ. This is an unbelievable picture of the gospel. Can you imagine as the slaves are hearing this? I mean, they are simply weeping and crying because they cannot believe that this is what God has done for them. That the Father went up for them specifically and has rescued them from, from the trash heap. Now, we miss this because we turn this into a theological debate. But for them, this was antithetical to everything that, uh, that they were told in the world. And then he goes on to say that not only were you chosen before the foundations of the world, that you should be holy and without defect, but in love he predestined us, and he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Right? And as Chris talked about, I have talked about adoption a number of times over the, the last previous years, and we're going to talk about it, about it again today, because it is a powerful, powerful idea. Adoption then was very different than adoption today. Like many Eastern cultures today, uh, sons had a very high standing uh, in ancient cultures, while daughters were considered second class. Uh, That's still true in in some ancient Eastern cultures today, uh, where, where daughters are considered second class. So when Paul says that we are adopted as sons, he is not actually being chauvinistic here. It includes not only men, but women as well. Uh, there was a different cultural, cultural reality going on here that we often miss. That's why when, through, replete throughout Scripture, God refers to not only women, but men as being the bride of Christ. And so he also refers to not only men, but women to be adopted sons. Because this is not an issue of gender, this is an issue of position. So he is saying, when you, are adopted to, when you are adopted by God as sons, that you are not second class. There's nothing second class about you. This, this was brought home to me back in my seminary days when we were talking about this whole doctrine of adoption. And a, a young woman who had just uh, um, um, moved from Korea to take classes at the seminary, 
uh, as we were talking about this, was really in tears. And, and afterwards, uh, the seminary professor was like, yeah, you know, he was talking, again, in our Western mindset, yeah, we are all adopted as sons and daughters of God. She stood up and told the entire class, I don't want to be a daughter of God. And she was explaining how in her culture, you know, how, how women were viewed versus men, right? And, and that's, not, that's not right, but she stood up and she said this, I want to be a son of God because that means I am not second class. That means that I am wanted. Adoption then would work like this back then. If you were rich and childless, you could go and adopt a slave to be your son. And this is how adoption happened back in the Roman Empire. First of all, adoptions were, were, had to be public. There had to be a public witness of the father choosing the son and the, and the slave accepting and receiving his adoption. And when that happened, the former debts that the slave had were now all canceled. And the slave was now given a new name, a new identity, a new status, new responsibilities, and new privileges. He was now part of a new family. More than that, and I find this part to be the most fascinating part uh, of Roman law. Under Roman law, a father could disown his own biological child, but he could not disown his adopted son. I mean, that's, that, that's kind of reverse of what we think. Right? In our culture, we, I mean, we, those of us who are kind of less, less knowledgeable of, of adoption, we often think, well, or think, oh, th this is your biological child, and that's your adopted child. Almost as if adoption is like second class. Well, back then, it was the reverse. You see, you could disown your own biological child, but as an adopted son, you could never, ever be disowned. So this, all this has a lot of meaning and implications for us today. Paul is making some modern parallels here. Slaves who were living in fearful circumstances uh, with no hope and were considered inferior with no status, subjects to the empire of Rome, he is saying to us, to his original readers and to us, we are slaves under the bondage of sin, fear, and death. We are objects of shame in God's eyes. We are inferior according to the standards of God's law, and we are now subjects of the kingdom of darkness. But when you become a Christian, that means God chooses you. He adopts you into his family. That, that means you are given a new identity, a new status, a, a, a new inheritance. He even talks about how we are given every spiritual blessing in verse 3. And all your debts, your sins are now canceled because of Jesus. In a culture where Paul was writing, where adoption was the perfect expression of what Jesus had done for them. The Ephesians would have been weeping only five verses into this letter. And so the gospel today says it was God himself who went up the hill, up the mountainside, and he did a hill called Golgotha, and he died for those who were deformed and defected by sin, and he chose us to be adopted into his family, and that means many things. That means you are no longer defined by your past. You're no longer defined by your habit. You're no longer defined by your addiction or your shame. You're no longer defined by your failure, or, or uh, you're no longer defined by your brokenness and weakness. That is not who you are anymore. Rather, you are defined by your adoption in Christ. And so it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter 
who you've become, because in Christ we are all children who've been adopted by the king of the universe who is now our heavenly father. It also means a lot for many of us who may feel proud of ourselves. That means your identity is not found in your career, in your job, in your status, in your grades. It's not, it's not found in any of those things. But rather, our identity is found in this. So here's what I would like you to consider uh, today as a reflection. If this is all true, right, what would it look like for you today, tomorrow, this week, to live as if, uh, to live as somebody who has been chosen, loved, forgiven, and adopted by God? If that is true, if that is who God is, and if that is what God has done for us, what would that look like for you to live in light of that? That's the first question I'd like you to consider. The story here doesn't end. As powerful as Ephesians 1 was when it was first heard and believed in the, uh, in the churches in the city of Ephesus, there is a tragic footnote to this story. Only 30 years later, after the believers in the city of Ephesus were uh, rescued by Jesus, adopted as sons into God's family, and, and uh, they received another letter. This letter was written by the apostle John, but he said that Jesus had a very different message for them, very different from the message that Paul wrote to them 30 years earlier. This message was written in Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus says to the church in Ephesus this, he gives him this warning. He says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. See, they had forgotten the wonder of being adopted into God's family. They were no longer astonished by the grace of God found in the person of Jesus. They had forgotten that it was God who climbed up the mountain and had rescued them from sin. And I think that's so true for many of us, especially for those of us who've been around the church block for a long time, right? We hear this over and over again that we get anesthetized to it, that the good news kind of becomes like, eh, you know, it's okay news. So I want to challenge us, for some of us, when is the last time that you've been amazed, astonished, and surprised by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus? When is the last time? Or does it create just nothing but like a yawn in you? Today we're going to do a little 